0: Amen. Thank you, Jessica. Appreciate that. Well, good morning. I know it's Christmas has passed, but Merry Christmas. We're still in that season of being merry and joyful, celebrating the birth of Christ. And it's good to be back in the house of the Lord again this morning with you. Um, did everybody have a I'm assuming you had a good Christmas. I know the Lord was very gracious to us, very blessed in the Montagna household. We are uh, we are in the Gospel of Matthew, and we are on the f- in the final five verses. We've been in this Gospel for quite some time, working our way through it, Scripture upon Scripture, verse upon verse. But we are in the final few verses, and it's in these verses where Jesus gives what we know of as the Great Commission, and it is a great commission. And so, what I have done is, as I came to these verses and Realize the significance and the power of what Jesus has shared with us before he ascended into heaven. I wanted to make sure that we understood the gravity of this, how these verses absolutely impact our lives individually and corporately, and understanding this mission that Christ has sent his disciples upon. And so I kind of turned it into a mini series, and I thought. It started with three sermons and now it's at four. It won't go past four sermons. That's where we're ended. <clears throat> but it's a mini, uh, mini-series, if you will, simply on the Great Commission. And so that's what we will look at this morning. And we want to look at how this impacts us. And it is, an, it is a great passage to end a book because it really brings us back. Jesus taught us so much in the, in the Gospel of Matthew. And it really brings us back to what life is all about. It brings us back to what's on God's heart. If you ever wondered, what's God thinking right now? Well, we don't know exactly, but we have a a big view and a firm understanding on what's on God's heart and what kind of things does he think about? What is God up to? And this passage helps us understand that in in a big way. And I also think it's powerful in the sense that You know, we've been an established church for many years now and we have good habits in place. I think there's, there's prayer meetings and so forth and there's lots of practices and mission meetings. We have a lot of good things that are in place that are good habits. But sometimes if we're not careful, good habits can betray us in the sense that we just find ourselves going through the motion, even coming to church on Sundays. Now, what's the purpose of all of this? It's not just to have to get up early and have to put our nice clothes on and have to listen to this sermon, maybe catch a nap in between points two and three, who knows? There, there, there is tremendous meaning and purpose in everything that we do as believers. And this passage brings us to this. And so I do want to camp here for four Sundays to glean as much as we can from this passage. So let's look at chapter 28, and we're going to read verses 16 through 20. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations Baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, to the end of the age. God is with us. This morning, here's where here's my thinking on this mini uh, series. So. Rather than diving in, taking this word for word, I wanted to step back and get a big picture of what's on God's heart or God's mission. Because this passage, in essence, describes the church's mission. But we want to know, well, what is God up to? Because we certainly don't want to, as God's people, uh, be accomplishing or be involved in a mission that's not. What he is involved in. So what is on God's heart? What is God's ultimate mission for the world? And we looked at that last time and we found that the mission of God ultimately is that God is about God. God is drawing glory to himself. God is working for his glory. Everything that God does is for the glory of God. We were created literally for the glory of God. Isaiah 43, 7, he formed us and he called us and, and he created us for his glory. So we looked at that last time and I'll I'll recap that and review that in a few minutes. And then the second is, OK, so if God's main mission is to bring himself glory, how does he do that? Are there knowable ways? Are there observable ways that we can see that God, yes, He is in this world bringing himself glory in certain ways. And we'll answer that question today. And then the third sermon will be on. Okay, so if God's main mission is to bring glory to himself and he does that by what we'll find today is he brings glory to himself through redeeming mankind. That's what we'll look at this morning. And then thirdly, okay. then how do I specifically bring glory to God? So that's what he's up to. Now, what do I have to be up to, to tangibly and practically and effectively bring glory to God? That's what we will look at in our third sermon. The fourth sermon is a very practical sermon where we'll talk about this as being the last command of Christ. We'll talk about what it means to be a disciple and to make disciples. Um. I'll give you some practical things that we can just immediately do, decisions we can immediately make to say, okay, this is God's heart, and He wants to reach the lost and He wants to reach the nations. I'm supposed to be a disciple and make disciple. What can I do? And I'll give some suggestions at New Covenant Fellowship ways to just get plugged in and get on board with what's happening here. And then I'm going to close that sermon actually with a 15-minute testimony, a video of a testimony of uh, a family that we got to know for a short time, and that's the Vangs, and they stayed at the Liverman's at Restoration Farm, and many of us got to interact with them for a little while. But he gives a powerful testimony, compliments of Josh Hill, who used his video skills to capture this. And he's going to give us a powerful testimony on what it's like to hear the gospel, for the gospel to go into the nations how it came into his people group, and how it has affected his heart. It's about a 15-minute testimony. So the fourth sermon will be very, very practical in grasping the Great Commission. And then we'll move on to our next book of study after Matthew. So just as a recap, the ultimate mission, what is God about? God is about God. He's about bringing glory to himself. Everything he does brings glory to himself. To him, that's what he is up to. And when we think about if we were faced to say, well, what is life all about? Why is all of this here? If you step back and just take a a big picture, a big panoramic, what is all this? The creation, the people, the cities, the country, the animals, the sky, the sea, you know, all of us. What are we all about? Why is all of this here? And I think... uh, with a little help of our sinful flesh, we often draw, draw the conclusion, well, all this exists really for me. The world should revolve around me because I have a will, a strong will. I have strong desires. There's specific things I want it to get out of this life while I'm here. And so the world should revolve around me. That's what it's all about. I'm on the throne. I'm my own king. And that can even creep into the church, that same kind of thinking, because we are loved so well by God. He does so much for us and we can read books and we can go to seminars and we find out about God forgives us. He orders our steps. He puts our chaotic lives in order when we place our faith in him. He blesses us blessing after blessing. He watches me when I sleep. He watches me when I'm awake. And he's just so good. He gives us things that we don't even deserve. And we can draw the conclusion that, well, life is all about me. God is about me. He loves me. And everything he does, he's just waiting for his next move to bring a blessing to me. But is that really what it's all about? Because there are certainly plenty of scriptures that back up God's relentless love, his grace, and his mercy. But when you look at the motive behind this relentless love, why does he do these gracious things? Why is he so generous to us? We will find that the motive behind that is to bring glory to himself. So we looked, for example, in Psalm 23, where it's a great example because you see where God takes this shepherd boy, David, and he says he 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 lays me in green pastures, a soft, lush vibrant place and bubbling waters. He takes me to my quiet place and it's so good and safe and God is nurturing me and caring for me. And then we read in a few verses later that all of that wonderful self-care giving, selfless care, giving care is for his name's sake. So it doesn't end in us. It comes through us so that glory echoes back to God. That is to say that the point of all this is for the glory of God. Every molecule, everything created, animate, inanimate, whatever it is, is and exists for the glory of God. That's what life is about. That's what church is about. And our mission needs to come in line with that doctrine. God is for God. God is about God. And then lastly, a practical way to think about that We introduced the idea of cat theology and dog theology. Many of you came and and had comments about, wow, I never heard of that. That's pretty powerful. It's a good way to look at things. Cat theology and dog theology. Now, just a quick little testimony about that. And I'm going to give you a quote of how cats think and how dogs think and the difference and the impact it makes to us. I was researching for this sermon. I came across this quote, which I'll share with you shortly about cat theology, dog theology. I thought, wow, this is great. Fits right into what I want to say. Well, what I didn't know or I had I had forgotten was a couple months before this. Uh, Shoko had sent Lisa and I an email with this whole teaching. I think it was on YouTube, a whole teaching with this guy that gave a teaching on cat theology and dog theology. Now, I didn't, and I I got the email. I kind of thought, well, that's mostly for Lisa, It's from Shoko. So I didn't even really give it a lot of attention. My my apologies, Shoko. But um, you know, so, oh wow, it's like a, it's like an hour long, and I don't have time for that. So I moved on, and I didn't give it a second thought. Come to find out that th- there is a legitimate teaching. As a matter of fact, there are books written. This guy has written books. I think co-authored books with Cat and Dog Theology. And it's Bob Shogren, and he lives in Richmond, Virginia, and he's big into missions. And um, he has, if I'm not mistaken, visited Restoration Farm right across the street. So it's a small world. I think I may have met him one time when he came, but I don't know that for sure. Anyway, it's interesting how you think things are out here, and then God just brings them right into your lap. So what is all this talk about animal theology, cat and dog theology? It's a way of looking at God. It's a way of looking at how life works. Maybe what God means to me. So he says in his powerful analogy, the cat goes, my owner feeds me, cares for me and cleans up after me. I must be God. In other words, it's all about me. The dog says my owner feeds me cares for me, and cleans up after me, he must be God. You see the difference in in the motive behind things and how we receive things, how we look at life, how we look at God, how we look at each other? Our tendency is to, to want to sit on the throne and just, yeah, life is all about me. And if that's what we believe, then that's how we're going to conduct our lives. And you'll get a different result. As opposed to God is he, he's just so good. He gives me all this stuff I don't deserve. He must be a good God. It's interesting. The cat theology is tempting. And I think our flesh tempts us and leads us to believe that really, you know what you want. And if you can just get the things, you know, you want that e- that equation equals happiness and blessedness. But scripture tells us it doesn't work that way. It's a lie. It's a false teaching. Because what scripture says, it just turns it right back side up. We learn this in Matthew about kingdom teaching. No, you empty yourself. You empty yourself. And that's how you are the most joyful and the most blessed. You give of yourself. You let God reign and rule in your life including sacrifices. It's not all. It's more blessed to give than receive. There's a whole new different way of thinking and acting and living and really doing church and doing the Christian life. Matter of fact, believing that temptation that life is all about me doesn't have the effect of blessedness and happiness like we'd like it to. It has the opposite of effect. Is sooner or later, if that's what you really believe, You should get your way. You're the most important person on the road. You're the most important person in this church. The the supermarket better have that food that I need to go get because I got to cook something. I'm meeting the deadline. Then you're going to wind up bitter and miserable because life doesn't work that way. It doesn't bend to you. So if, if that's your philosophy, plan on being pretty grumpy. Have little fits. I've had plenty. Little fits. Where life, I was convinced this needs to go my way. I got important stuff to do here and I'm important. And I wound up pretty grumpy as a result. So that is just kind of a recap of making much of God. That's why we're here. What is God doing right now? He's working to bring himself glory. Everything he does. Westminster Confession of Faith... Some of you are familiar with that. The chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. The glorifying God is where the joy is. And then I like uh, what John Stone Street from the Colson Center says. He says, according to scripture, God placed us here to rule creation, to steward it, to bring it to flourishing. And in the process of witnessing all he has made... To echo his glory back to him. I love that because, see, he gives, but it's intended to go right back to him in the form of praise and glory and sacrificial living, joyful living in the presence of God. So that's God's mission. Are there tangible ways, noticeable ways? What what can we see that's practical in this world? How does God go about bringing glory to himself? And the answer is by redeeming man. It brings glory to God to redeem a lost soul. It brings glory to God to open blind eyes, to open deaf ears to the glories of the saving grace of the gospel. All that goes into God's economy of redemption, the Old Testament, the New Testament, everything is designed to be a glory offering to him. So if you think about before the fall, God brought glory to himself by creating everything that we know, see, smell, hear, everything, all the senses that we interact with and engage with. Even things that we don't know exist. The galaxies, things that we are constantly discovering, how vast this galaxy is, this creation is. He created all of it, perfect harmony, perfect order, and it was all good, even man, created in his image. So he brought himself glory. He even said, This is good. This is good. Light and day and night and darkness, all good. Then man fell and you wonder what god's going to do with this because you know he's a holy god and he and he warned man not to eat of the forbidden fruit but he does and then you find man hiding and he's naked and he's he's ashamed of what he is now his eyes have been opened to evil he already knew good and here comes god the father he comes to him what are you doing why are you hiding what's wrong what has happened of course he knows it's rhetorical well, I'm, I'm, I'm naked. Who told you you were naked? What is? And then he covers him with an animal sacrifice. He covers the nakedness. Now, there's still consequences to that sin. And it's cosmic. And the whole universe has fallen. And Romans tells us that creation groans for the day when it will be lifted back up again, which is what the Christmas story is. Christ came to accomplish. But there was this forgiveness. There was grace That which was not deserved was offered to God's creatures. And now God glorifies himself in that way, giving people the grace and the love that they don't deserve. Doing this grand, impossible thing of winning sinful hearts back to himself so that we voluntarily, willingly and lovingly worship and praise him and live for him. So we can see God tangibly glorifying himself through his plan of redemption. The whole sacrificial system of the Old Testament was all part of that plan to teach us about the one for all sacrifice of Jesus Christ. All of these things bring glory. And so against all odds, if you will, and we were reminded this morning in Philippians that. God can do the impossible when it pertains to bringing himself glory. He will do it. And he is doing that in our midst. He has done it in our hearts, bringing glory to himself. So he glorifies himself when a a hell-bound sinner repents. When a hell-bound sinner confesses and owns his sin and says, Yes, you're Lord, and I owe you my life. It glorifies God when the defiled are cleansed. It glorifies God when those that were once not his people and alienated are welcomed into the table of fellowship and enjoy the saints of God, the love of God. It glorifies God to supernaturally transform us. When we at the end of our services have a time of praise and prayer and we have an opportunity to hear from each other, just little things that God has done in our lives. Maybe something at school, maybe something on the job, maybe something in our marriage, something in our family. God is at work and it pleases him to glorify himself in our lives. And this is how he does it. Think about the call of Abraham in Genesis 12. We looked at this at our Christmas message. He he actually didn't just he doesn't just wing redemption. He's got this very specific plan to save mankind. And to build the kingdom of God. And he made this promise to this pagan Abram. Changed his name to Abraham. That you're not just going to be the father of a real flesh and blood son. Even though your wife is barren and you're past the childbearing age. I'm going to make you the father of many. The father of nations. So through your seed. All, not just your people group. All people groups will be blessed by God. That was a promise that he made. So we we're seeing what how big God thinks. We're seeing what God is up to in the world. And it doesn't just start and end with his people, Israel, but his people, Israel, were designed to be a nation. He gathered them in to be a nation that were to be a light to all the other nations so that they also would join into the praise and worship of the one and only true God. God thinks big. He doesn't just if we can be happy with ourselves that I'm, I'm saved and I'm, I'm heaven bound. But that's not enough. That's not where God stops. God's grace is to be extended. So in Isaiah chapter forty nine, six, he's talking to his people, Israel. He says, it is too light a thing that you should be my servant and raise up tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. In other words, it's, it's a start and you're my people, but it's too light. It's too little to just think on those terms. And then he says, I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Do you see God's heart in this? That was his plan of redemption for that particular people group. We learn in Judges that they weren't chosen because they stood ahead above the other nations in righteousness. They had their own ways of sinning and worshiping false idols. He chose them because of his sovereign grace. He employed them into service just like he does to us. Their service was to become a nation and follow him so righteously and zealously and passionately. That other nations would see and want some of that, so to speak. If you think about the pinnacle of Israel would have been when David ruled and then his son Solomon. He secured the borders. Things were going well. They were incredibly wealthy. I mean, gold bar upon gold bar in the treasury. Solomon was supernaturally smart. There was just harmony and peace in all the communities throughout all the land at this time. And it started to, to get some notice from the other kings and queens and the, and the potentates of other nations. And they would come and say, "What? in essence, what are you doing here? I like this. You guys are advancing and you're prosperous and you're peaceful and you're happy. What's the secret? And so that was the pinnacle. Of course, it was to be God's the secret. Worshiping him. He's the one and true God and he's blessed us. And that was as good as it got. And then it just kind of fell apart from there. All this time and then by the time Jesus comes, God's own people don't recognize him because they had turned this glorious opportunity of truth and action in and they were deceived. They turned it into their own means of self-righteousness, their own form of worship, and they still had good habits going on. That's the scary thing. When Christ came... His people that were lost still had some pretty good habits. They went to the temple, they prayed, they tithed, they sang their praises. They they still read the word and preached the word. They did not know God. They needed to be recreated and refreshed. So you see God's bringing himself glory through different families, different tribes, different nations. So that he can be known throughout the entire world. Well, Israel remained there and they remained a nation. They learned some lessons along the way. And of course, there were true saints among the Old Testament people. Obviously, they there were those that really did know God and believe in God. And we read about them. But eventually, many of them lost sight. And it was no longer a lifestyle where God was the point. That everything was about God, it became about them. What they could get out of it. How they looked in the eyes of man. We are here to glorify the Lord, and the way God glorifies Himself is by saving lost souls and by growing souls or sanctifying those that are saved. So here's a spoiler alert a spoiler alert. Regarding the next book that we will study after Matthew, the next book that we will study after Matthew will be the book of Second Corinthians, and I have a what's powerful to me. Hopefully, it'll be powerful to you when I introduce that book towards the end of the month of January. You'll you'll get to see how I believe God brought us to this book. Um, it's powerful to me as a way to follow up. The theme of Matthew, of Jesus as king, and then this great last command of the Great Commission. But I think this book will serve us well in kind of carrying this theme and keeping us focused on what's on God's heart. And I'll just give you one scriptural example out of 2 Corinthians 4.15. The Apostle Paul, of course, he's writing to the Corinthians. It's, it's his second letter and he is talking about all the suffering that he has gone through. You know, the verses like, a comfort those with the comfort that you've been comforted with. He's the God of all comfort. The Apostle Paul was describing the, the, the depths that he has gone to to serve them, to bring them the gospel, to bring others the gospel. And it's brought him nearly to his life. And he's been in despair. There's been a lot of suffering. So that's the background. But then he says in 2 Corinthians 4.15, for it's all for your sake. It was all for you so that you can grow, so that you can know God. And you think, well, that's cat theology. Yeah, there you go again. He's serving me because life is about me. He's willing to risk his life for me. How wonderful. Then he says, it's all for your sake. What's behind that? So that as grace extends... To more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. That's the Great Commission in that verse right there. See how it's about God? Paul is serving the Lord. He's giving his life, but the result is fruit. Others are coming to Christ. In other words, the choir is growing, which gives God glory. As souls are saved, there are more testimonies of the goodness of God which is an extension of his grace and gives God glory. That's a perfect example of the difference between cat theology and dog theology and what life is all about. That is what is on God's heart. So he is glorified. He's glorified at creation and he's glorified in the miracle of recreation. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. This transformation that we are in the midst of glorify, is a way for God to glorify himself. Now, how does this work in the Gospels among the triune God? We've seen the same idea, the same thinking in God, the son. God, the son came to fulfill the mission of God, the father to bring him glory. And in his high priestly prayer in John chapter 17, he's. He's conversing with his father in this chapter. And among other things, he says this in verses 4 and 5, John 17. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. He understood his mission. He was born in the manger. He grew. He began his ministry. He lived the life of righteousness. He died for our sins. So he says, I glorified you in that what you sent me to do, what I came to do. Now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. So within the Godhead is just one member of the Trinity bringing glory to the other perpetually. So we're learning that his desire is to glorify God in the mission of winning souls. And so what we need to be thinking about as we go through this series is readjusting our thinking in our heart and our mind and what we're doing, even with our Christian lives. Do I love the same thing, same things God loves? Are my goals and my ambitions the same thing that God is up to? Do I rejoice over the same things that God rejoices over? These are the things that we want to be thinking about during this mini-series. And Jesus, in this high priestly prayer, says this as he's talking to his father again in chapter 17. Now in verses 15 through 19. And it's where he says, I didn't ask you to take them out of the world, but keep them in the world, but keep them safe. So we're in the world, but not of the world. And then verse 18, he says, as you sent me into the world. So I have sent them into the world. Now you see that not only is it Christ's mission, so God gets glory to himself through his plan of redemption. God, the son, comes to accomplish that plan. He makes disciples. He saves people by grace. And then as he was sent by the father, he sends us. So we we have the same mission. We're up to the same thing. We are invited into the Father's work of redemption, of redeeming this world, of building the kingdom of God, one decision at a time, by the grace of God to the glory of God. It's the same exact mission. It's the mission for our homes and our personal life and for us as the church of God. See, it's practical. It's tangible. It's observable ways that God gets glory in our lives. Now, if you think about... The mission of our church, our mission statement, statement of faith says we exist as a church to exalt God, to edify the saints and to evangelize the lost. That's another way of stating the mission of God. It's all about exalting God. It's all about giving God glory. How do we do that specifically? Well, we edify one another. We, We help each other grow as disciples, grow closer to God. To conform to the image of God. So it's it's sanctifying the saints. It's edifying the saints. And evangelizing the lost. Because God has a heart for the lost. He's not finished redeeming people yet. He's not finished getting the glory due Him. He has a certain amount of glory in all of this plan. And it's not come to fruition yet. We are a part of that. So at New Covenant Fellowship, we exalt God, we edify the saints, we evangelize the lost. It's being a disciple and making disciples for the glory of God. That's what everything that we do here in a sense, some things more directly, some things indirectly. But that's the big picture of all that we do. Everything that we do has that as its motive That's how we tangibly glorify our father. If you want to see it, if you want to see it, you'll see people in the classrooms teaching our young ones about the faith of Christ. You'll see the older folks upstairs being taught about the faith of Christ in the word of God. Tangible ways to bring glory to him. Saints are being equipped for the work of the ministry. So everything has that purpose. All that we do for the purpose of leading you to Christ, for the purpose of keeping you in Christ, for the purpose of growing you in Christ, for the glory of God. So just let that sink in. Every Sunday school lesson taught has that as its motive. Every sermon ever preached, every community group ever gathered in any home over the years. Every offering, every penny given has this as its motivation. Every testimony given. Every testimony of the Advent candles given. It's for this purpose. Exalting God, edifying the saints, evangelizing the lost. Every counseling session ever given. Missions meetings that take place. mission trips that take place. Service projects that take place. Tearing the chairs, stacking the chairs up and putting the chairs back. All of that is fitting into the glory of God. It's what he has given us to work with to make disciples and to be disciples. Wiping a table counts. Printing a bulletin counts. The elders meetings, the deacons meetings, all the prayer groups that we've had. Greeting one another with bulletins out in the sidewalk. All of this is just our way to make this happen tangibly for the glory of God. The John MacArthur says, so when you evaluate your Christian commitment and you evaluate how you're using your Christian life, ask yourself one question. Am I involved in winning lost men and women to Jesus Christ? Is that where my time and energy and effort and talent and money is going? When we think about that, I am here to serve God in the way that he has gifted me and in my willing obedience to lead people to Christ and to keep those that are already in Christ in Christ and to grow them, be a disciple, make a disciple. That is what ultimately it's all about, because that's how God brings glory to himself. That's God's mission. That's God's, the son, God, the son's mission. That's God, the Holy Spirit's mission. Is that your mission? We want to be careful that we don't pitch our tent prematurely in the wrong place. Down here when God would have us up here, down here in cat theology, perhaps down here in our own little world, building our own little kingdom when God is calling us to this. We want to refocus and have a heart for one another and a heart for the nation. That's what this series is all about. That's why I'm taking four Sundays to go through it. To refocus our drive and our passion because God is fulfilling his mission in our midst. Now, maybe sometimes we're more passionate than others, more obedient than others, more on fire than others. But this is God's mission and he will bring it to pass. And we are very privileged to be a part of it. Every song we sing, no matter who leads it, is for the glory of God. All the offering music is for the glory of God. You see how all of this works. This is just how we do church. It might change in the future. We don't know. But this is our method. There's lots of different ways to bring it. Because that is where the joy is. So that is the the big picture of this great commission. I pray that God would take his word as he alone can do and just permeate our hearts and our minds with it. Read this passage. You know we're going to be here for a while. Read it. Plead with God. What do you have for me in this? There's work to be done. And we are the team to do it. May God bless the preaching of his word.